Well, good morning and welcome, church. We are glad that you have uh, tuned in uh, this week to the service and uh, look forward to what God has in store uh, through His Word, through the preaching of His Word uh, this day, even though we may be in our living rooms or somewhere else watching this. We know that God is present uh, when we seek after Him. So uh, just glad that you are tuning in here this morning. Uh, if you are in uh, need of some prayer or uh, you have some spiritual questions or something that's just burning on your heart, we'd love to know and hear about it so that we can uh, help you through that or be able to pray for you. There is uh, a link at the bottom of our video here for you, or you can go onto our website and uh, click on the About tab and uh, the Connect card and uh, connect with us, fill out that form. We would love to reach back out to you uh, with some encouragement, uh, maybe some answers, or at the very least be able to pray for whatever it is uh, that maybe uh, you are struggling with this day. Uh, I'd like to encourage you, invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to turn to the book of Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter this morning. And I would like to read for us verses 11 through 20 as our scripture reading. So if you would stand, please, as I read God's word. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for this time that we have still to gather together in spirit, to worship you, to proclaim your name, to learn from your word. God, I pray for us in our situation right now that we will grow closer to you in this time. That we'll take it upon ourselves to spend more time in fervent prayer and reading of your word to become more and better disciples. God, I also pray that we'll take advantage of the opportunities even now that we have to proclaim the gospel uh, in the various forms that we can. 
whether it be through social media, internet means, phone calls, texting, God, just because we have a stay-at-home order doesn't mean that the gospel stays home. God, I pray that you will empower us to continue to preach your word, to speak your gospel to those that we come into contact with. I pray for Pastor Mark as he brings the word to us in this fashion that you will focus his mind and bring to to his uh, mouth the words that you would have for him to challenge us with. That as our pastor, he is challenging us, but God, he is speaking your words. You, God, are the one that is challenging us, that is encouraging us. And may we hear this through your faithful servant this morning. It's in your loving and holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome. If you have a Bible, if it's not opened already, to Acts chapter 19, we invite you to uh, find it there um, and turn to verse 11. Uh, We'll get there in just uh, a few minutes. In uh, 1720, in the 1720s, uh, the church in America uh, was said to be dead. Uh, A spiritual malaise characterized the church as interest for and uh, faithfulness to God had uh, greatly declined. Uh, It was even believed by some that, that the ministers themselves were not even converted, let alone their members. But then something happened. The Spirit of God began to move. And the Spirit awakened the hearts of people through prayer and preaching, the preaching of the Word of God. And the church in America experienced revival. It became known as the Great Awakening. The church was revived like never before. And God used men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and others to lead this awakening, an awakening that spread uh, through the American colonies, across the Atlantic, into Britain. Theologian J.I. Packard, in an essay on Jonathan Edwards called The Glory of God and the Reviving of Religion, noted 10 elements of the Great Awakening. Let me just briefly run through them. The first is God comes down. Second, God's word pierces. Third, man's sin is seen. Christ's cross is valued. Number five, change goes deep. Love breaks out. Joy fills hearts. Eight, each church becomes, and this is J.I. Packard's words, the people of the divine presence. Uh, Meeting in an experiential way, God is felt to be there. Uh, His presence is there to bless in the midst of those who are his. Number nine, the lost are found. Uh, Amidst the the great awakening, one of the the elements of the awakening was that the lost were found. And certainly that means conversions, people who never knew Jesus coming to Jesus. But additionally, it does mean the the sense of those coming home, uh, prodigals. This week I was reminded of the 15th century painting of Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. If you've never seen that, 
painting, or maybe if you, even if you have, um, I would invite you after, after this is over uh, to Google that and to see that image. And um, it's beautifully done and powerfully uh, captures that moment of the return of the prodigal. It's one of the elements of the Great Awakening. But, but the 10th uh, element that J.I. Packard cites is that Satan keeps pace. See, in revival, uh, Satan doesn't just give up. Uh, even though there, there are good things happening, though the spirit is alive and, and moving, uh, it's not as though Satan says, well, okay then. Uh, no, Satan continues to seek to disrupt, to seek to prevent, to seek to, to blind the eyes of people that they may not come to faith. Here in the chapter that we will look at, or the passage we'll look at this morning, verses 11 through 41, we see, in essence, a great awakening uh, with a number of the elements that we just referred to. Verses 11 and 12 uh, describe for us the power of God, the power of God displayed, or in J.I. Packard's uh, notes or elements, God comes down. And God was doing extraordinary uh, miracles by the hands of Paul, so that the handkerchief and the aprons that touched the skin were carried away to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now here we're seeing this miraculous event or events of God's power being displayed. Here in the book of Acts, miracles uh, indicate apostleship. So the fact that Paul is doing this is, is further evidence of his apostleship. But, but Luke makes it clear that it's not Paul's power. It, it, is what, it is God. God is doing it through Paul. And when power is seen like this, uh, those who are power hungry take notice. And we saw this back in, uh, earlier in the book of Acts with a man named Simon, Simon the Magician, where he saw this power, this apostolic power, and he wanted in on it. He, he wanted to have it. He wanted to control it. He wanted to be able to use it for his own purposes, as if, as if we could somehow uh, harness or domesticate the power of God for our own use. Paul was not doing that. God was working through Paul. And yet here, like Simon the magician, there are men who want to use the power of God that they do not have access to. In verse 13, we see that. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists under, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And so uh, they, they said, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And we find out in verse 14, these are called the sons of Sceva. The sons of Sceva, Sceva is said to be here a, a high priest, a Jewish high priest. And these sons obviously were not practicing Judaism if they're uh, trying to cast out demons, but they're trying to invoke the name of Jesus in order to exercise these demons. But as we just noted, that the power of God cannot be co-opted. We, we, we can't control the power of God. The power here is not theirs to manipulate. It is God's and God's alone. And they're going to learn this the hard way. If we keep reading, the evil spirit answers and says, Jesus we know, and Paul we recognize, but, but who are you? Who are you, sons of Sceva, that, that you're invoking uh, this attempt 
with the name of Jesus. And then verse 16, the men, uh, the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Uh, this has been called a reverse exorcism where, where the, the demon, the demon possessed man drives out the people who are trying to drive him out. Unsurprisingly, uh, this event became known, verse 17 tells us, to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. You remember last week, we saw in uh, the end of that passage, verses, uh, verse 9 or so, that the, that the word of God was spreading to all the residents in Asia. When Paul went public with his, his ministry by going out of the synagogue, Jews and Greeks began to hear about the ministry of Paul, began to hear the gospel, began to learn about Jesus. And so this message was being reached, uh, a, a, greater, a greater reach. And so these Ephesians uh, see this. And though this might sound comical to us today, uh, the Ephesians did not take this as, as a joke. They didn't get a good laugh at the expense of the sons of Sceva. That's not what happened. In fact, we see something very different happen at the end of verse 17. And fear fell upon them. Awe, reverence, recognition that something, something happened here. And their response was that the name of the Lord Jesus would be extolled. The name of the Lord Jesus would be magnified or would be glorified. Their response to seeing this miracle was worship. It wasn't worship of the miracle. The miracle pointed to the miracle worker. See, the miracle wasn't actually the point. The miracle was the pointer to the one who was doing the work. That's what we see here in the response of both the Jews and the Greeks. God came down. God's power was being displayed. His word pierced. Man's sins were seen and Jesus was valued. He was glorified. What happens next? Verses 18 and 19. And many of those who now believe, were believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. They, they come and they confess. Confession is saying the same thing about your sin that God says about it. When I confess something, I'm agreeing with God. And that's what these men did. They agreed with God. These people did. They agreed with God and they divulged their practices. They openly confessed it. They brought their sin into the light. Listen, sin loves to dwell in darkness. It grows in darkness. But when the light of the gospel shines, that is when repentance happens. That is when confession happens. That is when we move into faith. And these Ephesians moved into faith. They moved into repentance and faith. And they brought with them, verse 19, their books, their books of sorcery and, 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 and magic, and they burned them in the sight of all. They, they let go of their sinful practices. They forsook those things. And they did it both spiritually speaking and physically as they physically brought their books and they had them physically burned in the sight of all. Uh, this was a public demonstration of their commitment to follow God. But it wasn't just public, it was also costly. 
not only costly to their, maybe their reputation or the way, the approval of other people, but financially. This was their livelihood, presumably. And additionally, what they were burning had value in that day. We're told here that the, the sum of all the books that were being burned was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I don't know what that means to you. It doesn't mean a whole lot to me because I'm not sure what the value of that would be in our context straight away. It doesn't necessarily say that. But people smarter than me have helped. And they say this, that 50,000 pieces of silver may equal approximately $6 million in today's currency. Which tells us there was a lot of books, right? (laughs) There was a lot of content. There was a lot of value, financial value here. As we witness these Ephesians confessing, uh, forsaking, putting their faith in God, we might ask ourselves, what do we need to repent? What sins are, are we holding on to? In what ways are we following something other than God? What do we need to destroy? What do we need to get rid of? What are we holding on that needs to be forsaken? You see, when God comes down, eyes are opened, sin is revealed, and change goes deep. And that's what we see here. When they saw this power, they recognized God for who he was. Their eyes were opened to their sin. They repented. Change happened. When Jesus calls, we surrender. We leave all to follow him. Jim Elliot, missionary Jim Elliot, so beautifully wrote this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So these Ephesians, they got it. They got it. They're giving up this, their magic, their sorcery, was giving up a lesser thing for the greatest thing of all. To give up what they cannot keep anyways what is less than, in order to gain that which they cannot lose. Luke continues the story with a statement of, of, of the progress that's being made in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the sixth progress report, we could say, in the book of Acts, where Luke makes mention of the progress that's happening, of the, the, the word of God spreading. That, at least in part, that's part of, uh, that is what Luke is doing. Uh, of saying this is how the gospel is spreading, how the kingdom is advancing from Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and forward. Well, from here, Paul's about ready to wrap up his time in Ephesus. And he makes plans for his next stop in verses 21 and 22. And and he resolves in the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem and saying, uh, this is verse 21, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul was intent on getting to Rome. And we'll see, he he eventually gets there. Maybe not quite the way he thought he was going to get there, but he did. But first he traveled back to Jerusalem and he had some business to do. But before he could even leave Ephesus, we find that adversity finds Paul. You see, with great success comes great opposition. And Paul knew that all too well. And when the gospel affects certain things, um, certain problems ensue. 
So when the gospel affects finance, when it affects money, when it affects people's livelihood, uh, things start to uh, conjure up some problems. And that's what we see here. Uh, Two times in the book of Acts, Luke uh, mentions that that the, the Gentiles opposed Paul. Only two times. Most of the time, it's the Jews that are opposing Paul. But there's two times that he, he mentions that. The first is in, uh, one is here, and then the second one is in verse, in chapter 16, when Paul uh, casts out the demon in the, the, the girl who's telling uh, the fortune teller. And her owners see that the prophets are lost, and then they're upset about that. Uh, well, here, um, this is going to happen again. The message of the gospel is saying that there, there's a God that's real. There's a God that, that does uh, crazy things like uh, miracles. And uh, he is greater than any other, any other quote-unquote God. Well, that flies in the face of a lot of things that are happening in the city of Ephesus, as we will see. As we've said, again, Satan keeps pace. Right? Even in the midst of an awakening, Satan is keeping pace. And he does so here by means of a riot led by a man named Demetrius. Now, we're not going to read all of the verses here in the next uh, 18 verses or so. I would invite you to to read them. If you want to pause right here and and read it and then come back, that would be great. I'm going to summarize it uh, for us um, today. So in the midst of a revival, we're seeing that unbelief uh, remained. Unbelief continued. It persisted. There was still a resistance. Yes, people were, were being saved. Yes, the, the, the gospel was spreading. The Holy Spirit was at work. But there still was unbelief that was present. And we find out about how this, this, um, uh, this riot, which turns into a riot, how it originated. And as we said, it originates with a man named Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith. And part of what he did is he, he built or crafted silver shrines of the goddess called Artemis, or that's in the Greek, or in Rome, they called it Diana. And so um, he recognized that what Paul was doing was going to affect his business, and he wasn't okay with that. So he gets together all the other uh, workmen of similar trades, and he starts to, to make a case that this guy isn't good for us that what he is doing is going to have um, implications for us. And so he, he makes the case, uh, specifically in verse 27. Let me read that for us. It says, and there, there's a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. So his first point was, um, our trade would lose its good name. Okay, so that, that's something they might all agree on. The second was, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. So the second thing was to appeal to their, their paganism, uh, their idolatry, and say that the, the temple would lose its prestige. That was valued at that time. And then finally, that she, that's the goddess, may even be disposed of her magnificence. Gasp, right? How dare they that the goddess would lose her, her uh, divine majesty? Because in that time, the last part of that verse says, she whom all Asia and all the world worshipped. Right? This, this false worship was, was uh, prevalent. What we really find out about Demetrius is that he was more concerned about his business than his theology. 
He was more concerned about dollars than doctrine. He was um, motivated by the love of money, which we find in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, is the root of all kinds of evil. So he kind of builds this coalition. And then in the next verses, 28 through 30, 34, we see how this kind of snowballs, how it develops. And when they heard this, verse 28, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And what we find out is, is the mob mentality builds. And there's confusion and there's, there's uh, anger and they're enraged. And so they, they grab two of Paul's companions and they take them into the theater or the amphitheater. Now that might, again, not really matter to us, that language, but, but this place that they're talking about held 25,000 people. And presumably uh, there were thousands of people in this, this theater. And Paul wanted to go. Like, this is the boldness of Paul, right? His, his two co-workers go, and he, he wants to, to go in and maybe try to defend or try to reason. But um, his, his other friends and uh, co-laborers prevent him from going. They, um, they convince him not to go, recognizing the threat uh, to him. And we find that for two hours, verse 34, for two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine for two hours, this, this constant chanting of this statement, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they would not be quieted. They would not settle down. One tried and he was, uh, he was uh, ignored. And they continued their, their mob mentality until uh, we find that, that uh, uh, the town clerk, verse 35, quiets the crowd. And begins to reason with them. And he first does so by, by assuring them that their mythical, uh, idolatrous beliefs were safe and sound. Don't worry, guys. We know the truth about Artemis. We, we know the truth uh, about this sacred stone that fell from the sky. Um, nothing can be denied. That's all safe and sound. And then he explains that these, these companions of Paul, they're, they're not guilty of what you say they're guilty of. They're not guilty of blasphemy or sacrilegion. That, that's not what's, what's happening here. Verses 38 and 39, he expresses to them that there's a legal way to go about a grievance. And this mob mentality is not it. There is a way. We have a legal system and you're not following the system. And finally, he says that uh, you really need to disperse because you're, you're actually uh, in danger of, um, of, of being charged with rioting, right? So you better disperse. And so they, they did. Uh, what we see here is God sovereignly using, um, namely the, the, town's, the, town's, uh, the, the town clerk and some of uh, the, the city leaders that prevented Paul from going uh, to... Um, to allow, in, in, in John Stott's words, the gospel freedom to continue its victorious course. Uh, these leaders weren't thinking about the gospel. Uh, they, they didn't know that. They were unwittingly part of God's sovereign plan to use men in, in leadership and in influence uh, to make way for the gospel, of which God still does today. 
So that's the story, right? That's the story of, of Paul. That's the story of this great awakening of, of, of these men and women coming to know Jesus and this resistance that we see. So what, what, what can we take away from this? What can we take away from this awakening, from these events? What does it matter for us today? Some of us, sometimes we read the Bible and say, well, what does that matter for us today? We're not in Ephesus. Uh, no, no gods to Artemis laying around uh, our, our city, we don't think. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe there might be another great awakening. Maybe God would so see fit to awaken again people, awaken his church once again. We've seen it here. We talked about the, the great awakening in the 1700s. There was another second great awakening sometime later. Certainly there have been other revivals throughout the years since. But maybe God will do it again. Maybe as we see the power of God at work, maybe the response will be to worship and to repent. You see, churches talk a lot about revival. Talk a lot about uh, revive us again or revive our nation or getting back to God or awakening or renewal or whatever kind of word you want to use. But revival or renewal come as people submit to the word of God, convicted by the spirit of God. That's how revival happens. That's how awakening happens. It includes repentance. It includes actual change. To pray for revival and no change to occur will be no revival. Revival means that we give up. Renewal means that we forsake the lesser things for the glory of God. To see the goal of worship is, is to get God. The goal of revival is getting God. Might God be moving again? Might he be at work even now? Might he be at work even right now, at this time in history, among us, around the world? The evidence of such a revival will be our repentance in our faith. Jonathan Edwards, we said before, is called the father of the great awakening. He wrote this. When God is about to bestow some great blessing on his church, it is often his manner in the first place to do so to order things in his providence as to show his church their great need of it and to bring them into distress for want of it. And so put them, uh, put upon them, crying earnestly to him for it. I can't help but read that and think, has not God so ordered in his providence that he is showing to us even now in this cultural moment of our history, of this pandemic, our need for him? Our need for his blessing. Might God be bestowing some great blessing on the church today? Might this, this moment of great need, might it be the beginning of something 
that God is doing. So would you pray? Jonathan Edwards says that that he, he shows us our need, it brings us in distress, so to put upon us a desire, a crying out, an earnestness for him. And so would you pray? Would you pray that God would move? Would you pray that, that God would bless? Would you pray that he would be merciful to convict and to bring to faith sinners? Would you pray that his love would draw the rebels and the prodigals home? Would you pray that God's goodness would be seen in the faithfulness of his people? That he would free us from our plans, our preferences, our possessions, our politics to pursue him and him alone? Would you pray that the church would identify more as citizens of a far country than citizens of this country? Would you pray that the gospel would circle the globe to reach the ends of the earth that many would be saved? Would you pray that he would use me and you to declare the good news? That is the work of Jesus. That is what God did through his son for you on the cross. As he died for your sins in order to give you life through repentance and faith. That's the good news. May we declare that good news to a world who brothers and sisters desperately need hope. There is hopelessness today. There is fear and anxiety about the future. Christian, we have the greatest hope imaginable. That no matter what this life holds, no matter what this life holds, the best is yet to come. And we are guaranteed to enjoy it. Would you pray that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea? Habakkuk 2.14. Would you pray that Jesus would come? Would you say with the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 22, Come, Lord Jesus. And would he? Would he come? Would he come to bless us? Yes. Would he come to be with us? He already is. Would he come to take us home? Oh, please. Please. So we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are debtors against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. God, I pray even now that those who may be listening in Pray for those who may be listening in, that your spirit might be at work in their hearts, that you would give eyes to see our sin, that you would lead us into repentance and faith. For those who have yet to believe, God, bring them to repentance and faith, we pray even now. For Christians who have, who have strayed, who have been unfaithful, 
who are currently living in sin, God would, as your word comes, as your word pierces, would you open their eyes to see their need, to see their sin, to see Jesus and the cross as beautiful and would their change go deep? God, would you use your church, this church, this local church, and the churches around this country and around the world, would you use us to proclaim the glories of the gospel of Jesus, even in a time where things are so uncertain, when we cannot do or be where we want to be and how we want to be. God, the gospel stands, the gospel remains, the gospel is still good news. God, would you give us opportunities to share it? Would you give us courage to take the opportunities this week? That more people might know Jesus, that we might grow more like Jesus, and that in all things, you would receive the glory. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.